Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul DeDuke. I'm the Director of Engineering Leadership and uh, member of the Herbst faculty. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Uh, we're very excited to welcome Emmett Penny, uh, host, the, the host of the podcast Exhaust. That's how I first uh, came to discover Emmett. It's his first rise to prominence. Uh, prominence is a good feeling, I'm guessing, Emmett. Yeah. Uh, he now uh, is the founder and uh, editor in chief of uh, Grid Brief. Uh, he's also contributing editor to Compact Magazine. Uh, in addition to hosting Nuclear Barbarians, that's the new gig. All right, very good. Uh, please, everyone, uh, join me in welcoming Emmett Penny. All right, is this mic'd or no? Yeah, okay, so everybody can hear me? All right, great. Um, give me one sec. Okay, well, let's hope this is gonna be fun. It was fun for me to work on this, and so I hope it's fun for you to hear it. Um, I'm glad to see some friends in the audience and some, of course, mostly new faces. Uh, this will be exciting. So tonight, I'm gonna talk to you about the energy transition. I'm gonna warn you now that it will also take me a while to get there. Uh, one reason for that is that I have to begin by discussing energy itself, which we struggle to comprehend as even Richard Feynman pointed out. But we can try to understand what energy means to us by asking a simple question. Why was the Promethean gift fire? In Aeschylus's tragedy, Prometheus Bound, we find Prometheus sentenced to a miserable fate. Every day, an eagle, the symbol of Zeus, finds him bound to a rock and proceeds to eat his liver, the organ the Greeks thought to be the seat of all emotions. Every night, the god's liver would grow back. What warranted such grisly punishment? Prometheus's description of human life before fire gets us nearer the answer. For humans in the beginning had eyes, but saw to no purpose. They had ears, but did not hear. Like the shapes of dreams, they dragged through their long lives and muddled everything haphazardly. They did not know how to build brick houses to face the sun, nor how to work in wood. Absent will, absent power, and so absent artifice. We were supremely vulnerable to the world. It's important that Prometheus's account begins with our senses. It implies that human life is for something beyond sensorial input. We had the organs of sight and hearing, yet they grasped nothing for there was no reason for them to grasp anything. That we were like the shapes of dreams bespeaks the poverty of life without purpose. Lastly, we knew not how to shelter ourselves. Notice that the description of humanity's condition moves outward from the sensing organs to the mind, to the expression of our will. Fire then was both symbol of and vehicle for our ability to create. Fire, combustion, energy gave us power. Power allowed us to work. And it's through work that human life flourishes. Perhaps Zeus punished Prometheus so brutally because his gift made us nearer to the gods. 
before moving on, I'd like to dwell a bit more on our inherent vulnerability in the world, specifically in nature. Prometheus knows well that life without shelter leaves us victim to the elements. Nature is a harsh mistress. Few have expressed this as starkly as director Werner Herzog in a clip from a documentary cataloging his insane quest to shoot the film Fitzcarraldo in the middle of a South American jungle. Herzog describes the natural world he sees around him as the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. His plan, I wish I could do the accent for you guys because that really sells it. Um, as his plans to make the film founder in the wild overgrowth, he comments that yes, he and the crew are in misery but it is the same misery all around us. The trees are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they sing, he tells the camera, they just screech in pain. <laughs> he says this not out of hate, but out of deep admiration for the jungle, which he says he loves against his better judgment. Nature is neither our friend nor our foe, but it is dangerous and it is beautiful and it is awful in its power. And we must make the world safe for ourselves if we mean to survive in it. Without energy, we're condemned to an outer dark riven with depredations that hazard our fragile lives. We cannot flourish except with energy. So we understand that energy allows us to work in such a way that we reduce the entropy into which we're born, allowing us to emerge from the pressures of mere survival. Refining our handling of energy took thousands of years. Alexander the Great discovered oil, but found it was useful only as a plaything. Ancient Macedonia lacked adequate refining capacity, it turns out. For millennia, human life was constrained by limited access to productive energy, respect for natural limits, and the search for the natural standards that coursed through the political, philosophical work of the ancients can be read as a response to the real concern of resource scarcity. What could be more injurious for a regime than the depletion of its stores? The urban polities that produced the intellectuals who struggled to puzzle out these problems had the most to worry about when it came to sustaining their energy supply. The size of traditional cities depended on two things, fuel wood and charcoal, each source constrained by low power density of phytomass production. Baklov Smill writes, the power density of sustainable annual tree growth in temperate climates is at best equal to 2% of the power density of energy consumption for traditional urban heating, cooking, and manufacturers. Consequently, cities had to draw on nearby areas at least 30 times their size for fuel supply. This reality restricted their growth even where other resources such as food and water were adequate. Such constraints are the story of most of human history. As the British agriculturalist culturalist Arthur Standish put it in 1611, and so it may be conceived, no wood, no kingdom. In this light, we can approach the natural standard that so occupied the ancients as an attempt to harmonize political life with the slim margins of energy that bound their world. Energy is wealth, and all wealth stems from human activity, and all human activity demands energy. There was just not much of it to go around.
not enough moisture in my mouth to go around. Okay, let's keep it rolling. But then a strange thing happened. From, say, 1750 onwards, a steady increase in income began. And after 1900, the increase accelerated rapidly. The period between the early and late 19th century, so the story goes, proved critical. As one researcher has pointed out, since 1820, the total product of the countries considered in a study of global GDP between 180 and 2003, pretty wide band, has increased 70-fold, population by five-fold, per capita product 14-fold, and real per capita consumption by almost 10-fold. Annual working hours are down by half and life expectancy has doubled. The term for this apparent discontinuity in energy abundance is the Industrial Revolution. And while European economies of all stripes in the time period under consideration expanded their industrial capabilities, no place was more pivotal than England, which had been in the process of replacing its wood-based economy with coal, thanks to the advent of Devonshire ironmonger Thomas Newcomen's steam engine in the early 1700s. From there, we began to incorporate fossil fuels into more and more of our activities. Coal was the key to unlocking this growth potential that seemed so impossible to our ancient forebears that its impossibility felt to them as assured as the law of gravity to us. To put this growth in perspective, swapping coal for timber in Britain produced a quantity of energy many times the amount stored in the country's forests. By 1820, coal provided the equivalent of power as that of a woodland area, roughly the entire size of Britain's surface area. 20 years later, coal's energy provision doubled, then doubled again in 1860, only to double once more by 1890. The diffusion of coal power radically reshaped society. City size was no longer limited by access to wood fuel, and thus urban areas grew denser. Class dynamics shifted as the insurgent bourgeois class rose to prominence on the back of the new energy-intensive industries. Their workforce flocked from farms to cities with grievances, desires, and demands of their own. Coal also brought us the most consequential of modern achievements, electricity. We take electricity for granted now, but when it first arrived, people could scarcely believe that it was real. A local Indiana newspaper reporting on the first ever arc light demonstration in its town square in the late 19th century writes that the light caused men to fall to their knees in astonishment. Before electricity, buildings could only stand so high. Who wants to walk up all those stairs? Elevators changed that. Children could now study at night which increased the use of libraries. Cities no longer stank of horse manure and urine. Sewage systems removed the human contributions to the stench. Women could more safely walk home at night and confined as they were to the domestic sphere in that era, housework took less of a toll on their bodies. No more scalding their hands on irons hot from the stove every day. But the best way to appreciate the boon of electricity is to read what life was like for American farmers before electrification. Harry Cruz, who grew up on a farm in Bacon County, Georgia during the Great Depression, writes that for tenant farmers like his parents, survival was a day-to-day -day crisis as real as rickets in the bones of their children or the worms that would sometimes rise out of their children's stomachs 
and nest in their throats so that they had to be pulled out by hand to keep the children from choking. Their homes had little to no plumbing and no light save oil, lamps, or candles. In fact, the Rural Electrification Act, the most successful portion of the unprecedented New Deal, saved Harry Cruz's life. As a child, he fell into a vat of scalding water meant to take the skin off of slaughtered hogs. It had the same effect on him. His doctor said a drying light needed to shine down on him at all times if he was to survive. The Rural Electrification Administration ran a line right to his home to provide it, sparing the young boy's life and giving America one of its most powerful voices in fiction. I gotta pick my beats, you know? <laughs> the decades following the New Deal marked one of the largest upticks in wealth as measured by energy consumption in our nation's history. Robert Bryce writes, between 1940 and 1970, electricity production in the United States grew ninefold to more than 1600 terawatt hours. Over that same three decade period, US gross national product increased nearly tenfold, going from 100 billion to 977 billion. Personal income soared, going from less than $600 per year to more than 3,900 per year in 1970 dollars. By 1970, the average American was consuming about 7,200 kilowatt hours of electricity per year, more than twice today's global average of about 3,100 kilowatt hours per capita per year. All told, between the late 1930s and the early 1970s, total American energy consumption increased by 300%. Historical progress, long a philosophical argument, appeared to many as an undeniable physical force when looking at statistics like these. And given Cruz's haunting description of rural poverty, don't they have a point? Modernity has been a boon for the alleviation of poverty and suffering that a generation or two ago was both general and tragic. And I should comment here, and in many places, it's still general and tragic. But I must say this account, using the harnessing of energy as a measurement for historical development and progress is a bit reductionist. It's not that it fails in explanatory power, but that it omits what I see as the other half of the story. Changes in the guiding assumptions of Western thought. Modernity as a physical achievement co-emerged with successive waves of philosophical development. When did we begin to think like moderns? Who unleashed the first wave of modernity? The answer might be surprising for some, but the modern mode of thought flowered in the mind of an Italian philosopher whose life straddled the 15th and 16th centuries. Niccolo Machiavelli. I'm sure many in the room most associate his name with a slanderous term that we use to describe someone as both amoral and opportunistic, Machiavellian. This does a disservice to the breadth and depth of his thought, but it speaks to one of his major departures from the ancient thinkers. Machiavelli, Leo Strauss tells us, is in profound disagreement with the view of others regarding how a prince should conduct himself toward his subjects or friends. The reason for this disagreement is that he is concerned with the factual, practical truth, not with fancies. Many have imagined commonwealths and principalities which never were because they looked at how men ought to live instead of how they do in fact live. 
Princes should govern people as they are, not how they should or could be. The other point of departure is Machiavelli's commitment. Hold on for a second. Which is that fortune is a woman, which means that we can control her by use of force. We likely would not put that so brutally today. I wouldn't, certainly. But 400 years later, after Machiavelli's birth, the British poet William Ernest Henley put it this way. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What's vital to understand is that in classical political thought, the republics of fancy that Machiavelli ditched were meant to chart a course towards the best political regime, a regime capable of supplying its members with the opportunity to practice virtue. According to classical political philosophy, the establishment of the best regime depends necessarily on uncontrollable, elusive fortuna or chance, writes Strauss. Another way to understand the limiting role fortune played is to see nature as something that impressed itself upon humankind, not the other way around. Nature is independent of man's will, the ancients believed a salutary truth. We belong to an order beyond us and with which we had to harmonize. Society was a natural part of this order. The good life or the virtuous life, Strauss continues, is the life according to nature, which means to stay within certain limits. Virtue is essentially moderation. Not so for Machiavelli, nor for his two greatest pupils, Sir Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes replaced natural rights emergence from the pursuit of man's highest ends, of which participation in the polity is a constituent element with what was previously thought to be the lowest concern, self-preservation. The political community was a compact born out of the wretched state of nature, the war of all against all in Hobbes' eyes. Despite his monarchism, this maneuver would have a leveling and eventually democratic impact when filtered through John Locke and then the American founding fathers. Each of us is equal in threat to each other and so worthy of the same rights. From society as a means for alleviating mortal danger came the conception of society as a means for alleviating suffering through the diffusion of commerce and the expansion of rights. Bacon, meanwhile, mounted his own revolution in the natural sciences in Machiavelli's wake. No longer was man a receiver of knowledge, but a maker of knowledge. We give nature its laws, not the other way around. All meaning derives from man, the ultimate knowledge seeker freed from the shackles of final causes who can proceed to dominate nature to improve his material condition. The power of this idea cannot be understated. It has not been without critics, of course, but neither has it been without beneficiaries, namely every single person sitting in this room. Ultimately, we see politics and political philosophy reduced to technical management and commercial expansion. Rousseau, the initiator of modernity's second wave, would decry this development as a loss of virtue. His forebear's major mistake was that their conception of man emerged dislocated from history. What previous philosophers took as the state of nature and thus the origin point of society was little more than a snapshot of men in their time. Men should not be seen as the naturally social creature of ancient thought, 
nor as the antisocial creature of Hobbes's reckoning, but as a historical creature in the process of developing over time. In Rousseau's view, humanity is malleable and perfectible, cultivating itself through the rationality of the general will. Rousseau's heirs, Kant, Hegel, and Karl Marx would supply the ultimate ends of this historical development theory that we have all now come to call progress, which was understood as not merely material improvement, but moral and political improvement as well. There is indeed a third wave of modernity unleashed by Nietzsche. It is relevant to our times, but not to the present discussion. As Strauss rightly pointed out, in America, we live in a Republican liberal democracy. Many of our difficulties and our triumphs stem from these first two waves of modernity. Therefore, I will forego a discussion of the third wave and address something likely lurking in the back of the close listener's mind. Toward the beginning of the lecture, I said that the enormous rate increase of energy began in the middle of the 18th century, exploding a century later. But then I mentioned Newcomen's steam engine, which arrived in 1712. Yet his was not the first steam engine at all, just the best of the firsts. And then after that, I brought in Machiavelli as the father of our modern mindset, but he was born in the 1400s. I even went so far as to say that modernity is both an intellectual and physical achievement co-emerged with each other. It should be obvious that these timelines don't add up. So either I'm being sloppy or I'm suggesting something about the inherited wisdom about what we call the industrial revolution. And indeed it is the latter. There are at least two problems with the typical account of the industrial revolution. The first has to do with the so-called rate increase of energy. If we compare world gross domestic product from 1 AD to the beginning of this millennium, we'll see a hockey stick that begins its curve upward around the early 19th century. Similarly, as scholar John Constable suggests, if we graph 5% compound interest on a single US dollar, we see a similar pattern. I'm not arguing that no rate increase of energy occurred, but that the second graph of compound interest, as Constable points out, suggests that there doesn't have to be a revolution, a major discontinuity at the foot of the curve to explain it. If the rate increase isn't necessary to account for the ramp up in energy abundance, then perhaps what we call the industrial revolution did not span decades, but hundreds of years. Small refinements in agriculture, sale and tools, et cetera, compounding until taking off exponentially. That would hardly qualify as a revolution. But surely those who lived through the 19th century knew what they were talking about, especially in England, the Promethean epicenter of the Industrial Revolution. No doubt, late 18th and early 19th century British philosophy, literature, and economics must appear festooned with the phrase industrial revolution. Who could live through a revolution and not know it? But surveying the literature, Constable writes, the field of modern economics was founded in the English language by Adam Smith, T.R. Malthus, and David Ricardo during exactly this period, 1750 to 1820. Not one of them uses the term industrial revolution or anything like it. Robert Owen, the idealist social thinker and factory owner, 
wrote extensively about the changes in the manufacturing system, but never used the term. Thomas Carlyle came close in Sartor Resartus, published in 1834, but written a few years prior, when he spoke of steam engines rapidly enough overturning the whole old system of society in favor of industrialism. Given Carlyle's knowledge of the French Revolution, that is surely significant. John Stuart Mill did use the term once in his Principles of Political Economy in 1848, but he wasn't referring to England and he didn't use capitals. Neither Dickens's Hard Times, 1854, nor Matthew Arnold's Culture and Anarchy, 1869, use the term. It doesn't even appear in mid-century standard textbooks like Fawcett's Manual of Political Economy, published in 1863. Perhaps most striking of all, W.S. Jevons, the engineers will know the Jevons paradox, uh, one of the greatest mid-century economists, wrote an entire book on the coal question, published in 1865, arguing vigorously that coal lay at the root of modern British wealth and used the term industrial revolution only once and though in reference to England, it was not capitalized. If the Prits didn't recognize what was happening as a revolution, then where did this phrase come from? Constable locates its first usage in France in the late 1820s. Though J.B. Say, professor of economics at the College of France, described the effects of cotton spinning in England as economically revolutionary, it was his student, Jérôme Adolphe Blanqui in 1837, who expressed his surprise that moderate, unrevolutionary Britain was seeing quicksilver economic modernization. Blanqui wrote in his history of the political economy of Europe, while the French Revolution was making its great social experiments over a volcano, England was beginning hers on the solid ground of the industries. The conditions of labor underwent the greatest modification they have experienced since the origin of society. Two machines, Henth Force Immortal, the steam engine, and the spinning machine overturned the old commercial system and gave birth almost simultaneously to material products and social questions unknown to our fathers. However, hardly was the industrial revolution born from the brain of these two men of genius, Watt and Arkwright, when it took possession of England. Frederick Engels then borrowed it from Blanqui and his closest friend, Karl Marx, took it from him. Blanqui is French, Marx and Engels German. The phrase wouldn't appear in English again until the late 1880s when two American translators brought Blanqui's work to the attention of Arnold Toynbee, a tutor in political economy at Balliol College in Oxford. Toynbee died three years later, but soon after that, his influential lectures on the English Industrial Revolution were published. Four years after that, in 1887, the phrase made its first appearance in the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is all to say that what we commonly call the Industrial Revolution is not a hard fact, but a historical interpretation vulnerable to the same doubts and interrogations as any other interpretation. We have been modern for longer than we typically think, and perhaps less modern than we believe. It may very well be the case that while we have materially improved our situation, we have not historically progressed in the way that some Enlightenment thinkers have imagined. For now, hold on to your doubts about the mythology of the Industrial Revolution. We cannot deny 
that our energy consumption has increased and that now this is putting stress on the planet. While climate change will not end the world, and despite the fact that planetary warming measurements do not approximate global quality of life, it is still a serious challenge for us to confront. The main policy idea for solving climate change is what's called the energy transition. This involves electrifying more human activity while replacing thermal generation, coal, nuclear, gas, with renewable electricity from wind and solar. There are two major problems with this plan. The first is technical. No modern industrial society has run its electricity sector off of intermittent resources, and for good reason. The electricity grid must be reconciled every single microsecond. It cannot remain at 60 hertz. If it cannot remain at 60 hertz at all times, blackouts occur. It's a system that prizes reliability and dispatchability, meaning you can make the power go where you want it, when you want it, above all else. Solar's major weakness is well known. It stops working when the sun sets. No one was more aware of this than Californians who saw natural gas turbines fire up to supply 60% of demand when solar dropped off the grid during last August's heat wave. The other problem is that the more solar gets added to the grid, the less valuable and less profitable it becomes. The hope is that batteries can offset solar's cannibalization, but batteries are, and will for the foreseeable future, remain too expensive to even attempt to supply this at the seasonal scale needed. Moreover, storage is not synonymous with generation. And not everywhere is California, a generally sunny and temperate locale. Similarly, not everywhere is the windy Midwest, states like Iowa, where wind tends to perform quite well. It has a better capacity factor than solar, but it is less predictable in output. Continuing to phase out thermal generation and replacing it with non-dispatchable intermittent resources while increasing demand for electricity is a losing proposition. It is already wreaking havoc on the grid, despite the fact that extreme weather brought on by climate change is touted as the major threat to America's electricity system. We've got another block quote coming up, so get ready, because I'm about to get ready. <laughs> In a recent letter, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's James Danley wrote the following. Weather is not the primary problem we face with keeping the lights on. The main problem is the quantity of generation available to meet load. An insufficiency makes the grid fragile during severe weather. This insufficiency is occurring because of the retirement of dispatchable resources and their replacement with intermittents. In its 2021 long-term reliability assessment, the North American Electric Reliability Corp stated that energy risks emerge when variable resources like wind and solar are not supported by flexible resources that include sufficient dispatchable fuel-assured and weatherized generation. NERC provides several examples. Mid-Continent Independent System Operator. For those of you that don't spend all day looking at FERC maps like I do, that stretches from Louisiana to the top of Minnesota, right? So it's a big portion of the country. Could face the retirement and resultant loss of over 13 gigawatts of resource capacity over the 2021 to 2024 period. So that means lots of power plants, gobs of them. 
At this level of retirements, resource additions must increase beyond current projections to avoid capacity shortfall in 2024. Capacity shortfall is an industry term, meaning you don't have enough, so you're hoping someone else does and that you can buy it from them. <laughs> in the California independent system operator, energy risks are present today as electricity resources are insufficient to manage the risk of load loss when wide area heat events occur. That's technical for heat wave. I don't know why it needs to be phrased like that, but uh, there it is. And the US Northwest and Southwest parts of the Western Electricity Coordinating Council, I think Colorado's in there, a few other states, uh, have increasingly variable resource profiles raising the risk of energy shortfalls. I should add that the regional transmission organizations, which are the markets that preside over the buying and selling of electricity in these areas, agree with Commissioner Danley's assessment. Danley continues, federal and state policies by mandate or subsidy have spurred the development of weather dependent generation resources, which are driving dispatchable resources into insolvency. The thinner and thinner reserve margins resulting from these incentives render the electric system ever more susceptible to instability in the face of any contingency, weather being but one possibility. But wait, there's more. PJM, a grid operator that covers 13 Eastern and Midwestern states, including part of where I live, Northern Illinois, serves up to 65 million people, reported this week that the energy transition is coming on more quickly than it can bear. PJM believes that up to 40 gigawatts of existing generation, enough to power 30 million households, are at risk of retirement by the end of the decade. That's over one fifth of its current installed capacity. 94% of the resources in its interconnection queue are renewable. Historically, the rate of completion for these projects is a slim 5%. For the first time in recent history, PJM faces potentially decreasing reserve margins as a result of these policies. This is bad news for MISO, that tall one that I talked to you about a little bit ago, which is facing nearly identical problems and relies on PJM's more robust margins for imports when its renewables fleet fails, as it did last week when wind stopped blowing in much of the Midwest. In other words, the energy transition is undermining the performance of the grid, making it less reliable. Even worse, it's undermining the climate goals that it's meant to reach. For example, California's 2021 diesel backup aggregation grew to 24 times the size of its entire battery fleet. That's equal to 15% of the state's formal generating capacity. New England has made it through successive winters only by reverting to dirty oil fire generation, sometimes serving as much as 20% of the region's electricity demand. PJM switched back to burning oil during the Christmas freeze last year as well, and Generac, the largest personal generator company in America can hardly keep up with demand for its product. Who's buying Generacs? People who live in states with high renewables penetration. The second problem with the energy transition is that it relies on the mythology of the industrial revolution. The thinking goes that if we could gallop past the wood economy with fossil fuels, then we could ditch fossil fuels for renewables in the same amount of time. I won't recapitulate the readjusted timescale I've already explored for the Industrial Revolution. I will only point out 
that people have been pushing for an all renewable future since the 1970s. As it stands today, renewable energy, excluding hydropower, comprised about 6% of the world's primary energy consumption in 2021, according to our world and data. The technical limitations aside, do we really believe that anyone will fully decarbonize by the end of the decade, as so many policies demand, especially given the manner these objectives are being pursued? Earlier, I spoke of the ancients' view of natural limitations as a good and beautiful thing. I'm bringing it all back, don't worry. I know I, know I went out there, I'm coming back in, don't worry. We have clearly surpassed what they thought was possible when it comes to energy production and consumption. But doesn't the physical world, our built world, have limitations of its own? We are testing those limits and flirting with disaster as we speak. Perhaps, as Strauss suggests, and as my troubling of the Industrial Revolution narrative implies, we are not quite as modern as we imagine ourselves to be. We have not totally broken with what came before us. And that we might have something to learn from the ancients about the pursuit of the virtuous life in an industrialized society. I've mentioned the technical problems with the energy transition and the disturbing trends we've already begun to see. Blackouts are dangerous. There is no strong, wealthy country with a weak electrical grid. But these are problems of survival, and life is meant for more than that. The fragilization of the grid, however, does not simply pose problems for self-preservation, but for our social trust. As a young House representative, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech on the dangers of mob violence and vigilante justice. He said that such actions, even if in some cases justified, injured people's faith in the law and rent the social fabric. By such things, said Lincoln, the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from government, and thus it will be left without friends or with too few, and those few too weak to make their friendship effectual. At such a time and under such circumstances, men of sufficient talent and ambition will not be wanting to seize the opportunity, strike the blow, and overturn that fair fabric, which for the last half century has been the fondest hope of the lovers of freedom throughout the world. As it goes for our legal commons, so it goes for our industrial commons. A fragile grid will demoralize the polis in much the same way. And if we find ourselves lacking in trust, we will find ourselves lacking in friendship even more. It was Aristotle's contention that without friendship, no society could survive. No friendship, no kingdom. I believe him just as I believe Lincoln. The material consequences of a fragile grid are but a small evil compared to the social consequences. If the ancients saw moderation as the essential virtue, what does that mean for us when it comes to climate change? I have but a humble suggestion walk the path of industrial conservation. Rather than trying to radically reshape industrial society, we should see it as a commons we have inherited that ought to be stewarded for both our use and that of posterity. Some might be wondering if I mean that we should not try to decarbonize our electricity sector or electrify more of our activities. Far from it. I ask only that we pursue the proven path of displacing fossil fuels the French nuclear build-out in the 1970s, and Ontario's more recent 
coal to nuclear transition. The latter is of great importance for us. Ontario succeeded in retraining its coal workers to run its nuclear fleet, thus maintaining those high paying, socially meaningful jobs that allowed these communities to flourish. For us to do this would not be an easy task, but it would be an excellent one. And the pursuit of excellence is what life is for. Thank you.